standing on the promises because we've got three young men who've made a decision to stand on the promises of God throughout the rest of their lives. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, uh, last year, maybe the year before, I went to a youth rally. And um, this is a, an international youth rally. These people go all over the world. It's a young team of, of young people from... Uh, college is a Christian college and they come and they talk to young people about media and the dangers of social media and how to make wise choices and how Satan uses social media in our lives. And at the end of it, they had time for Q&A. And one of my students got up and said she had a question. And so she asks this team of young college students who go all over the world teaching young people to serve God. That's their whole goal, their whole purpose. And her question was this. She said, tell me about when you were saved. And the main guy who led it, he he took that question. He said, you know, wow. He said, that's a really hard question. And I thought, really? That's strange that that's a hard question. And he said, you know, I just don't, I don't know the answer to that. He said, I, I mean, I guess you'd kind of have to say when I was seven, I like went up at some youth rally and asked Jesus in my heart. So maybe it was then. He said, but you know, I didn't care about serving God then, you know. He said, I guess he saved me then, but you know, I didn't care about serving him until I was in college and doing this and that. And, and then he said, and baptized, he said, you know, I was just baptized like a few months ago. He said, so I, you know, I don't know how to answer that question. I thought that's really strange that this guy would be traveling the world teaching young people about serving God and he can't even answer the question about when he was saved or not. And I I was thinking about that. You know, we use the book of Romans and a lot of the teaching in Romans to explain to us how salvation works, right? We use the teaching in the book of Romans to explain to people who aren't Christians, here's what you do to be saved. We use Romans chapter 6 about baptism, baptized into the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We use that all the time. But did you know that was not written to unbelievers? That was written to Christians. That was written to people who've already done that stuff. And as you can notice, we don't have PowerPoint today. That's not by choice. It's by technical difficulty. So we're going to go old school, and I'm going to ask all of you to grab a Bible, if there's one close to you, and open to the book of Romans chapter 4. And we are going to look at just a piece of what God says in the book of Romans about being saved. Now let me give you a little background to catch us up to where we're at. Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, if you're a Gentile, which I think is probably everyone here today, I doubt we've got any Jews here today. If you're a Gentile, you're condemned because you have violated the law in your heart. You have done what you knew was wrong and you did it anyway. And he talks about how Gentiles are not right with God. And then he goes to the Jews and he says, Jews, you're real big to walk around talking about, well, we've got the law of God and they don't. And he said, that's fine, except for the fact that you don't obey the law of God. You know what God says, you just don't do it. You're no better than they are. And in chapter 3, he says, the truth is, everyone sinned, everyone stands against God, no one is righteous, and nobody's right with God. And then he 
introduces this question. So how can God, who is righteous and holy and spotless and blameless and sinless and cannot and will not tolerate sin, how can He save anyone? Because heaven's a perfect place, right? There's no sin in heaven. There's no sin where God is. He can't abide sin. Sin separates us from God, right? So how can He allow you with your sin into heaven? And that's how He introduces and answers this question. The heart of this book here is Romans 4 and 5, and we're going to get into 6 a little bit too. But that's the heart of his question. How can God do that? And he explains God's plan of redemption for mankind. In Romans 4 verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? So he starts immediately with Abraham. Do you know why he would start with Abraham? Because Abraham is one that everyone agrees was righteous. It doesn't matter who you are or what your religion, if you believe Abraham existed, you believe he was righteous. The Jews do, the Muslims do, the Christians do. Everyone agrees that Abraham was righteous. So he said, let's start with one we can all agree was righteous. What did he find according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He says if Abraham was just in the eyes of God because of the way he lived, because of his righteousness, because of his godliness, because of his good works, if that made him righteous before God, he could walk up to the pearly gates, open up, let me in. He says that's not true. You remember the story of Abraham, don't you? Now, he was a righteous man, but he did some stuff. <laughs> you know, he told Sarah to lie to the Egyptians and tell them he was her brother so they wouldn't kill him. In fact, he did that twice. I mean, Abraham was not a perfect man. But he was righteous. We all agree he was righteous. Why was he righteous? On what grounds did God consider Abraham a righteous man? He goes ahead in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He said Abraham was counted righteous because he believed God. Not that he always did right, but that he believed God. And he goes ahead and explains, verse 4. Now to him who works as the wages are are not counted as grace... But as debt, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So he says, if you work and you get paid for that work, that's a debt that they owe you, right? If you were to hire me to work for you for $20 an hour. Let's say you're going to pay me $20 an hour to wash your car and clean your yard and whatever it is that you hire me to do for you. Okay? And I work 10 hours. And I come to you at the end of the day and I say, I work 10 hours today. And you go, well, yeah, I know, but it really wasn't that hot. And it wasn't that hard to work. My car wasn't really that dirty. And you don't pay me. Am I going to be angry? Yeah. Why? You owe me 200 bucks, don't you? You owe me $200. Because I work for you. For $20 an hour, you owe that. It's a debt. If you pay me that $200, I may say, thank you. But it's not a gift. I earned it, right? But if you give me something I didn't earn, 
You know, if after church I called you aside and I said, listen, you know, I just appreciate you and I think a lot of you and, and I just want to write you a check for $1 billion right now. And I give you a check for $1 billion. Okay, now it will bounce. <laughs> but if I could do that, you didn't earn that, did you? You didn't. You didn't earn a billion dollars. I mean, that's... You can't earn a billion dollars. Somebody said, well, Bill Gates said, no, I mean, yeah, but... I mean, he didn't earn it by working. You can't work and earn a billion dollars. And he says salvation is the same way. Being right with God, you can't go, well, I went to church. Well, you know, I, I could have lied about that and I told the truth. Yay. That doesn't make you right with God. Salvation is far too valuable for you to earn it by going to church a few times. It's far too valuable for you to earn it by reading your Bible every night, which none of us do every night. It's far too valuable for that. So the only way you and I can receive salvation is if we don't earn it because it's just too valuable it can't be earned. Abraham didn't earn it, but Abraham believed God. And he goes ahead and explains this. Jump on down to about verse 19. He says, Abraham, talking about Abraham, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He says, think about Abraham. Abraham's wife, Sarah, could never have kids, right? She never could. That's a blessing they wanted, but she couldn't have kids. Lived their whole lives. She couldn't have kids. God comes to him and says, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. Well, Abraham now is 100 years old and Sarah's 90. Okay? He's 100. He can't have kids. His, old, his own body wasn't working anymore to be able to produce offspring. Sarah had never been able to have kids, and now she sure couldn't because she's 90. I mean, this is not just impossible. It's triple impossible. And Abraham was the kind of man, had the kind of faith in God that he looked over at his dried up old prune of a wife in the rocking chair and says, Honey, we need to get a nursery ready. We're going to have a baby. You see, he believed what God said, even though it directly contradicted all of the things that you would naturally think in this world. He trusted God. Would you do that? Would you have that kind of faith in God? I mean, to really trust Him when He tells you something and it does not seem right to you? And you believe it anyway? You see, that's why Abraham was righteous. Because he had that kind of faith that whatever God said, that's just the way it is. Even though culture and society and all of my past experiences all disagree with that, whatever God says is the way it is. Now look, in verse uh, 22, Therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. You know what accounted means? It means credited. It means he didn't earn it. It just somebody went down to the bank and put it in his account. They credited 
it to him. God looked at Abraham and he said, you know what? You have that kind of faith in me. I'm crediting you with righteousness. Because you have that kind of faith. That faith that doesn't doubt. That faith that in the face of all impossibility still says God is right. And he had that kind of faith. Now, look at the next verse. 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead and who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He says, I'm not writing this just to tell you about Abraham. That's not why this story is in the Bible. This story is in the Bible so you can know that God will count you righteous the very same way he did Abraham. Not because you're perfect, not because you never make mistakes, not because you never sin, but because you have the kind of faith that Abraham had. That whatever God tells you to do, that's what you're going to try to do. You're going to do the very best you can do to do anything God tells you to do. You're not going to make excuses, and you're not going to find reasons, and you're not going to blame other people. You're just going to do what God said do. And that's the kind of faith that he expects and requires. And that's the kind of faith that he considers for righteousness. Now look what he says there in the last part. He says, we believe on him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. He said, you believe in God. You believe that He raised Jesus from the dead. You believe that Jesus was payment. You know, the other night when we came, a bunch of us were here at the church when Jacob was baptized. We baptized him right in here. And after we baptized him, there were no sins floating on the top of the water. How do we know God washed away his sins? How do you know that? I mean, he didn't look different when he came up other than he was wet. He still has the same skin color, the same hair color, the same smile, the same eye color. I mean, everything was the same. How do you know? You don't know. The question is, do you trust what the Bible says? I do. I believe the Bible says when you're baptized, you're having faith in the operation of God, that God, through the blood of Jesus, is washing away your sins. There was no blood in that water. You know, if that really, if there'd been blood in that water, you think we'd have gone in there? <laughs> Probably not. We'd have gone, ooh, let's go to the lake, you know. But there was blood, spiritually. God said that when He sacrificed His Son, it pleased Him to punish Jesus for us all. It pleased Him to take Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. That Jesus was, the big Bible word for it, is a propitiation, an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. Now, if you believe that, you really believe that, even though there's no evidence physically to tell you that, and even though in our culture most of the world will tell you that's not true, if you believe that, you have the kind of faith that Abraham had. Do you believe that? I believe that. 
That's what we as Christians stand together in believing. Look at the next verse, chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The way you go from being an enemy of God to having peace with God is through who? Through Jesus Christ. What Jesus did. I heard a story, and many of you have heard me tell this before, but I think it just illustrates so well the picture in Scripture that God describes for us. There was a a shepherd who found a little orphan lamb out in the field. And he brought that little orphan lamb in, and he was trying to take care of it. And and, uh, he didn't know who it belonged to. He didn't know where it went. And it didn't have a mama with it. It was just a little orphan lamb. And so he tried to get one of his mama sheep to go ahead and accept and nurse this little orphan lamb. And none of them would. You know how animals recognize one another from smell. And, you know, the mama would smell on it and they would all turn away from it because it wasn't their, wasn't their lamb. They wouldn't accept it. And he tried every trick he'd heard of and he got desperate to try to save this little lamb that was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And finally, out of desperation, he picked one of the little baby lambs in his flock and he took it and the orphan lamb out behind the barn and he killed the baby lamb from his own flock. And he skinned it. And he took that skin and he laid it over that little orphan lamb. And then he brought it back into the fold and he brought it to the mama of the baby who had been killed. And she recognized the scent of her own child. And she nursed it and she raised it. That's the picture in Scripture. First or Second Corinthians chapter 5, it said, He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, what Scripture says is when you're baptized, God takes your sins and lays them on Jesus. And He takes Jesus' righteousness and He puts it on you. And then when God looks at you, you know what He sees? The spotless, blameless, perfect righteousness of God, of His own Son, of Jesus. And when He looks at Jesus at the cross, He sees the sin that you've committed And Jesus was punished at the cross for your sin. That's the picture. And when God does that, you go from being His enemy to being His child. Through Jesus Christ and through what Jesus did. Because Jesus was willing to go from being His child to being punished as His enemy in your place. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to you all what He's saying here? Okay. Now, let's go on, jump down to verse 8, where he explains this a little more. He says, but God, this chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He said, that's the way God showed his love to us. You know, you are not so lovely and love lovable that God looked down at you and he goes, oh, man, I just they're just so sweet, so cute. I just got us in Jesus. That's not what happened. God was disgusted by you and your sin. God hates and despises sin. And He still said, I love them so much, even though I am repulsed by them and their sin, that I'm going to send my own Son that I love desperately to die in their place and to take their sin. 
I want you to know that's love. That's love like none of us can understand. That's amazing love. We sing songs about that amazing love, don't we? That's amazing love. Look what he says now in the next two verses. I want you to notice where all the focus is. He says, much more than having now been justified by His blood. What are you justified by? His blood. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Are you saved by your life? Are you saved by how good you are? By how faithful you are? No. You're saved by His life. You're justified by His blood. You notice all of the focus is on Jesus. It's not on me. Because I can't be good enough. I can't be righteous enough. And if God judges me based on how good I keep the law, do you think I'm going to heaven? No. You think you're going to heaven? No. If God judges you based on your law-keeping, on your obedience to Him, you're going straight to hell. And so am I. But we're justified by the blood of Jesus, by the life of Jesus, by His the death of His Son. All of these things reconcile us to God, and all the focus is on Jesus. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. He says sin came into this world through Adam. One man. Adam brought sin into this world. And death passed to everyone. Why? Because we're all guilty of the sin of Adam? No, that's not what this says. It says because all sin. Death spread to all men because all sin. You've sinned. I've sinned. You know it. I know it. We've all sinned and so we're all guilty. Sin spread through all mankind because what we get from Adam and Eve is the knowledge of good and evil. And we all choose to do evil at some point. And that's sin. We've all been there. We've all done that. It passed. But he makes a comparison here. He says Adam was this first man and he brought sin into this world. But the second Adam was Jesus. And Jesus came and Jesus brought righteousness into this world. Now I want you to look at this starting in verse 15. And I want you to notice there's one word that's going to stick out. And I'm going to emphasize it as we read about your salvation. Verse 15. But the free gift. The what? Free gift. Is salvation a free gift? Well, we have to work to earn that. No, you don't. It's a free gift. You know what a free gift is? A free gift is something you don't earn, isn't it, Kent? That's what a free gift is. If I tell you I'm going to give you a free gift of two hundred dollars, you have to work for me for ten hours, but I'm going to that's not a free gift. That's something you're working to earn. He says it's a free gift. The free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Notice he's called it a gift twice in that verse. Look at the next verse. And the gift is not like that which came from the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. He's still talking about being justified. He calls it a gift twice in that verse. Look at the next verse. 
For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. There he calls it a gift again. The next verse. Therefore, as though, as through one man's offense just judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Did you see how many times the word gift is used there? Now, if I give you something and I want you to know it's a gift, and you don't do anything to earn it, and I tell you, what, six or eight times, it's a gift, it's a gift, it's a gift, it's a free gift, it's a free gift, it's a gift, it's a free gift. How dare you go show it to somebody and tell them you earned it? You can't. You might say, you know what, preacher, I just don't like what you're saying. What you're saying sounds just like what denominational churches say, that we just God just loves us and gives us salvation. We don't have to do anything for it. You read the verses if you grabbed your Bible. You heard it. This is what the Bible says. God said this. He called it a gift over and over and over again. It's a free gift, He said. I say, well, so are you saying then that we don't have to do anything? That it doesn't matter? That God just looks at Jesus and goes, well, because He was perfect, we're saved? I mean, if that's the case, then everyone's saved, right? Hey, look at what He says in verse 20. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You know what that means? Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. You got a lot of sin in your life. Have you done a lot of bad stuff? I said, well, my pile of sin, you know, I've got a pretty good pile of sin. You think there's enough grace to cover that pile of sin? Well, what if your pile's this big? Think there's enough grace to cover that? Well, what if your pile's that big? Think there's enough grace to cover that? Well, what if your pile abounds? You know what abound means is that there's just too much of it. What if you've got a huge pile of sin? Is there enough grace to cover that? Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Yeah. The Apostle Paul killed people just because they're Christians. Have you ever done that? I hope not. God forgave him. You know what Paul told Peter or Timothy? He said, God forgave me to prove he'll forgive anyone. Now, that's my paraphrase. That's what he says in, the, in one of his letters to Timothy. I'm the chief of sinners. He said, I'm the worst sinner that ever lived. And God's grace toward me was there to prove He'll save anyone. The Apostle Peter cursed and swore that he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Have you ever cursed and swore when somebody asked you about Jesus? Cursed and swore and said you're not a follower of His? This guy was an apostle. Do you think there's enough grace to cover his sin? You think there's enough grace to cover Paul's sin? You think there's enough grace to cover your sin? You think there's enough grace to cover my sin? You know, we like the idea that there's enough grace to cover my sin. I'm not so sure about yours, though. <laughs> right? 
I mean, yeah, you gotta, you gotta trust God and all that, but you got some other things you need to do too to get right with God. You need grace, but you also need some other stuff to be forgiven of your sin. Well, what's he teach us? You know, my response, my natural response to that as a human is, okay, so preacher, what you're telling me is it doesn't matter what I do, I can be right with God. I can just be forgiven no matter what I do. That doesn't seem right, does it? But if it is true, that it doesn't matter how bad, all right. You know, I mean, forget this church stuff. <laughs> I got things I got to do, right? I'm busy. I got all kinds of stuff I can do. God forgives me, and it doesn't matter what I do or how I live. God loves me. You just told me, you read me a verse that said, no matter how much sin, there's enough grace so I can just sin and sin and sin, and there's enough grace to cover it, right? That's the natural human... In fact, that's exactly what these people in Rome said. Look at the next verse. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what he said. Okay, well, if that's true, then I can just keep sinning, right? And there's where you've missed the point. No. Jesus didn't die so you could be sinful. Jesus died to make you holy. There's a difference in those. Jesus doesn't forgive you because you're holy. He died to make you holy. He forgives you to make you holy. Not because you're already holy. You see, we get those backwards. And when we get those backwards, we get all messed up. When they're backwards, either we think it doesn't matter what we do, or we think, boy, I'm a work, 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 and I feel pretty justified that God owes me salvation because I'm doing pretty good. And both of those are wrong. God owes you nothing. But you can't just continue to sin... He says, look at Paul's answer. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we're buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So he says this in Romans 4 and 5. God saves you based on what Jesus did, not based on what you do. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough. You can never be right with God based on what you do. But Jesus was perfect. So God gives you credit for His perfect life. The natural response to that is, Oh, cool then, it doesn't matter what I do. And He says, wrong again. It does matter what you do. Because if you were baptized... Notice his focus on baptism there. If you were baptized, then when you were baptized, you are baptized into his death. That's why we lower you down into the water, right? You were buried with him by baptism into death so you could be raised up to walk a new life, to be different. Don't fool yourself. If you're not different, you're not a Christian. You have to be different than you would have been without Jesus. You can't have his death if you won't take his life, you see. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't say, well, his death paid for my sins, but I don't want his life. I don't want to live like him. 
You die with Him. You're raised up. You now live with Him. You walk with Him. But you do that because He saved you. Because He died for you. Not in order to get Him to save you. Not in order to get Him to die for you. You see the difference? Does that make sense? And look what He goes ahead and says. Down in verse 11. He says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, when you've done this, when you've been baptized, you need to consider yourself dead to sin. Now, that's where a lot of us have trouble. That's where I have trouble sometimes. Because, you know, if we had a dead guy up here, instead of, instead of this, we had a casket, and there was a dead guy in that casket. And I walked up to that dead guy, and I go, Hey, dude. Cover me on my story. I'll give you 50 bucks later. Is he going to cover me on my story? Is he going to be my backup man? Hey, dude, here's a bottle of whiskey. What's he going to do? That's all he's going to do. It's going to have no impact on him. It's going to have, it doesn't matter what you offer the dead guy. It's going to have no impact on him. He's dead to sin, right? Do you feel like that? Do you feel dead to sin? I don't feel dead to sin. You know, you can catch my attention with some things that you shouldn't catch my attention with, right? What he says is consider yourself dead to sin. Not you're going to feel like you're dead to sin, but consider yourself dead to sin. When you think about yourself, when you're tempted with the booze or the money or whatever it might be, when you're tempted with that, you say to yourself, you know what? I'm dead to that. I'm a new person. I died to that. I'm a dead man as far as that's concerned. Why? Because Jesus died for me and I was baptized into His death, His burial, and I was raised to walk a new life just like He does. And therefore, when I consider myself dead to sin, look what He says in the very next verse there. Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. He says, because you've been saved, because you've been washed in the blood of Jesus, because you died with Jesus and you were raised to walk a new life, because of that, now you be different than you were before. You see, God doesn't save you because you're different now. You're different now because God saved you. We've got three young men who were baptized this week. Do you think they're never going to sin again? Anybody in here think they're never going to sin again? I know better than that. I've sinned since I've been baptized, haven't you? Haven't you sinned since you were baptized? We all have. But his point is this. God didn't save you because you were good. God didn't save you because you did certain things. God saved you because of Jesus. And when you were baptized, you were accepting, you were believing, you were having the faith of Abraham that if you were dunked in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that God washed away your sins. And because of that, he says, because you died with Jesus and were raised to a new life, you live different now. You don't do the things you used to do before. You don't walk the way you used to walk before. In fact, verse 13, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. 
He said, you used to use your hands to do sin. Now use your hands to do righteousness. You used to use your mouth to do sin. Now use your mouth for righteousness. You used to use your eyes to commit sin. Now use your eyes for righteousness. You see, now that He has saved me, I give everything I am, my body, the, my members, to be used by God for righteousness. To be used by God to serve Him. To be used to, by God to glorify Him and to touch and help other people around me. That's what I use my body for now. Why? Because He saved me. Not in order to get Him to save me, but because He saved me. Verse 15, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Here's where the rubber meets the road with most of us. He says this, You need to know this. You need to know that you're the servant of whoever you're serving. And you can sit here and go, well, I love God and this and that. But if you're serving sin, you're the servant of the devil. You're not the servant of God. If you're living your life to serve sin, you're not the servant of God. You are the servant of whoever you serve. Now, He saved you so you would serve Him. He saved you so you would walk with Him. You don't have to. If you choose not to, then you're not His servant. You're not His. But if you've been saved, and if you believe that He raised you to walk in a new life, if you believe He washed away your sins, if you believe He made you dead to sin and alive to God, then what you do is you get up tomorrow morning or this afternoon and you do different than you did before because now I'm serving a different master. I'm serving a master that requires different things. I'm not serving me anymore. I'm serving Him. And I do what He tells me to do as much as I possibly can because that's who I serve. And then verse 17, but God be thanked. And He summarizes it all right here. He says, let's thank God for this. What? That you were the servants of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now walk through that with me just a second. We're thanking God for what? Well, you were a servant of sin. Is that true of you? Did you used to serve sin? Yeah, I did. It's true of all of us. I've served sin. Okay. He said, but you've obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine. What's the form he just talked about here in Romans 6? What's the form of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? What was that? That was baptism. He said, you've obeyed that, but you obeyed it from your heart. It's something that happened from your heart. It's not something that you just did. But it's something that, that's why we don't baptize babies. That's why we don't baptize tiny little children. Because it's something that a person has to become a repentant believer before they can do that. You obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And you know what happened then? Being then made free from sin, that made you free. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to do what sin tells you to do anymore. Being then made free from sin, you know what you become? The servant of righteousness. You become a slave to what's right. A slave to what God wants you to do. Do you see the order? I believe he explains that to them because there was a lot of confusion in the early church. And uh, the same confusion exists in the world today. You had people who were antinomians who say, you know what, it doesn't matter what we do. God loves us. Honk if you love Jesus. His greatest desire is that at the end he can say a good time was had by all and we all go to heaven forever and everything's great. On the flip side, you've got people who are legalists. They say, well, you know what? If you don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do something else just exactly right, God's going to send you to hell. And you know what? If you go to a church and y'all make one mistake in your doctrine, you're going to hell. And we can't have anything to do with those people because you're going to hell. And we have people who spend their lives trying to earn their right standing with God. And you can't do it. Neither one of those extremes are true. Paul wants us to understand what's true is you were a slave to sin. You obey from the heart that form of doctrine. That makes you free from sin. And now, because you're free from sin, you begin to serve righteousness. Not you serve righteousness to get free from sin. You serve righteousness because you are free from sin. And he wants us to know whoever you're serving determines who your master is. Now, the last verse here we're going to talk about, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what you deserve? The wages of sin, what you get paid for the life you've lived? You deserve death. I do. You do. We all do. But he said the gift of God, once again calling it a gift, the gift of God is eternal life. Life forever. Do you believe that? Well, we've talked, we talk about this kind of stuff a lot. Do you really believe that? I mean, when we gathered down here and Jacob was baptized and you all saw that and everyone rejoiced and we sang, oh, happy day. And we sang, the battle belongs to the Lord. Do you believe that? I believe that. And I hope you believe that. If you don't believe it, you don't have the faith of God. You don't have the faith of Abraham, rather. You won't be right with God. If you do believe it, I mean really believe that, then it will change the way you live. It will change what you do. If it doesn't change you, then there's a problem with your faith. So I'm calling you today to have that kind of faith. Just decide, you know what? I'm going to quit blaming other people. I'm going to quit making excuses. I'm just going to do what I think God tells me to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do. And it doesn't matter what anyone else does or says. I'm going to do what I believe God tells me to do. Because He saved me. And it's worth that to me. It's worth that. I'm going to do what He says to do. If you're a person who needs to make that choice and that decision... We can help you with that today. You can be baptized into Christ today. If you are a, a person who has made that commitment, I call you to reaffirm it today. You don't have to come to the front. Just reaffirm that that's your commitment to Christ and let it make a difference in the way you live your life. 
I hope you've been edified. If there's any spiritual matter you need to bring before the congregation, please come to the front while we stand and sing.